If you walk into an empty space, especially a 12,000 square foot box, it's hard to envision what the space could be. But when he had aisles and aisles of merchandise and clothes, people can see what that building could be. Best ever listeners, I'm so excited to share today's sponsor with you. It's Eastern Union Funding and Arbor Realty Trust. If you're in the multifamily space, you likely recognize these names, but have you used them? Uh, I'm guessing if you haven't, then you probably know someone who has. I can tell you personally, we have used uh, Mark Belsky. He is a point person at Eastern Union Funding as a partner with us, and he has helped us secure debt uh, for actually a deal we closed on this month. And we've worked with him. Um, In addition, my clients, my program, my consulting program have worked with him to successfully close on deals. When we were starting out, Ashcroft was starting out, we had somewhat of a track record, but we weren't fully as established with our investor network. I went to him and we secured some equity, $500,000 in equity to fund one of our deals. While he works with more institutional partners, you know, he's brought $200 million in equity over the last 12 months. He was able to help us out there and we've built a relationship with him and Eastern Union Funding ever since. So if you need equity for your deal and you have a track record, then he's your point person. His number is 212-897-9875. If you need debt, then he partners up with Arbor on a lot of transactions. So if you're a multifamily borrower who wants agency or bridge debt, then that's the team to work with. Uh, We have worked with their team, both Eastern Union and Arbor, on deals. And people who have purchased our deals, purchased deals from us, have used Arbor, as well as my clients in my consulting program, they've used it. So this is a recommendation that comes from firsthand experience. And the last thing I'll say about uh, working with Mark Belsky at Eastern Union is that if you need a loan guarantor, but don't have that track record quite yet, then Mark can look at what you've, the deal you've got And assuming it checks out, he can make introductions to people he knows as potential loan guarantors for your deal. So debt, equity, and potentially loan guarantors. Uh, All you need, well, you need to find a deal, obviously. Um, But besides that, you know, the other main components of the deal they can help you out with. So talk to Mark Belsky. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com and his phone number 212-897-9875. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And with us today, Ash Patel. And if you recognize Ash's name, that's because you're a loyal listener and you've been listening since episode 477 at least. That's where I interviewed him. The episode is titled, You Should Have Bought This Mixed-Use Property. Ash is a good friend of mine. I got to know him actually by, I believe I reached out to you on Bigger Pockets to interview you. And that's how we initially got connected. And Ash is a successful commercial real estate investor. His first property was a mixed-use property. So he's seen both residential and commercial. He is adamantly for commercial real estate versus residential. He previously was in IT for 15 years, and now he's a full-time 
commercial real estate investor. He owns property with a total value of over $6 million, and he has seven commercial properties that that comprises of. So based in Cincinnati, Ohio. With that being said, Ash, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background. And just to catch everyone up, it's been about a little over a thousand days since we've talked on the show. And then also that will lead into our topic today. So it's been a thousand podcasts since... That's right. Yeah. A little over a thousand. I'm from New Jersey originally, went to school in Indiana, got an IT job in Cincinnati after college, had a 15 or so year career in IT, got into real estate because I thought there were some good tax benefits, didn't really know what I was doing, got into it, fell in love with it. The first building, like you said, was a mixed-use building, and I was able to see the residential side and the commercial side of real estate fell even more in love with the commercial side, and since then, focused on becoming a commercial real estate investor. So it's been about six years now since I've been doing that. And real quick, why did you gravitate towards commercial versus residential? My first property was an apartment building over a grocery store, and I was able to see issues and benefits of both residential and commercial. Residential tenants required a lot more effort, toilets clogging, middle of the night, just normal residential issues. The commercial tenant, I would never hear from, and even when there was issues, they would resolve them on their own. They would call in their own plumber, they'd call in their own HVC guys, and it was just a lot more effortless in managing commercial tenants. So subsequently, I acquired additional residential and commercial properties, but in the end, gravitated towards probably 90% commercial. On that first deal, were the residential rents that you were receiving more than the commercial rent to make up for the extra time that it took you to manage? They were not. It was all market rent, but the commercial rents were a lot higher. The commercial side of it was just more profitable. Got it. And with our conversation today, we've talked, you're one of my good friends, and so we've obviously talked a lot outside of the interview. And one of the things that you've mentioned to me a couple years ago is that you saw the market being really hot. So you kind of went on the sidelines a little bit. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. My first deal was in 2012. It was when the economy was still rebounding. And from 2012 through 2016, it was relatively easy compared to today to find deals. And in 2016, things were getting a little bit more competitive. So I assumed we were near a market peak. And I started selling a number of properties and putting the profits into multifamily syndications through a company called Ashcroft. I'm sure you know that. I know them. Yes, I'm familiar with Ashcroft Capital. <laughs> so uh, again, I assumed the economy was somewhere near peak. And really, I was just making excuses. Because it became harder to find deals, and I wasn't putting in more effort compared to 12 through 16, I just figured lay back, go passive, and wait for the next downturn in the economy before I got back in the game. And then things were kind of on autopilot. And I realized it's not as much fun just maintaining properties as it is chasing deals, buying some properties, 
acquiring tenants and just hustling and getting out there. So I started marketing myself a little bit, letting people know what I do, started networking a lot more with other real estate professionals. And not surprisingly, the deal started flowing again. And it was all just letting people know what I do, Facebook posts, lunches with other people. And today, just a year after I started marketing, I've got a handful of investors that want to partner on deals. I've got other real estate professionals bringing deals to me or wanting to joint venture on deals. I've got a couple great brokers that see me being active and start throwing me a lot more deals. And the result is I'm closing and buying more properties. So back in the game, stop making excuses when things got difficult. Just get out there, hustled, and got back after it. So 2016 compared to 2012 to 2016 is more challenging to find deals. I guess when you look at new deals now compared to 2012, 13, 14, and 15 when you were finding deals more regularly or easier, are the deals similar to what you were finding then? They are not. 12 through 16, I often acquired property that was either vacant or partially vacant. So there was a lot of value-add upside in stabilizing the properties. Today, I'm finding mostly fully rented spaces. Maybe the rents are below market. Or I'm still finding a few partially vacant buildings where you can still add value. But the returns are not as high. The upside is not as high. but the returns are still adequate to keep doing this. And what type of returns do you look for? In the past, I wouldn't have done anything without at least being a 20% cash-on-cash annualized return. And today, 16 to 18% with no capital appreciation. So just pure cash flow, 16 to 18% cash-on-cash returns. And does that include when you sell the property, annualizing it, or after stabilization, or...? It does not. After stabilization, yes. Okay. Sometimes stabilization may be getting rents closer to market or filling vacant spots, but it does not take into account the sale or any property appreciation. Since you had this new concerted effort in 2016, you've closed on one deal and you've got another closing tomorrow, right? As far as commercial properties, yes. Yes. A few joint ventures with residential folks. But yes, commercial, I had a broker. This was an interesting story. So one of the things that I put out there on Facebook was willing to mentor people that want to transition from residential to commercial, willing to mentor people that just want to learn more about what I do, or willing to talk to somebody who wants to partner on a deal, anything. Just get out there and network. If you have any interest in doing something or learning something, I'll sit with you. We'll figure out if there's something we can do together. And I had a very successful residential flipper who had been doing residential flips for over 10 years reach out to me because he wanted to learn more about commercial real estate. So when I have these meetings, I'm often more interested in what they're doing than sharing what I'm doing. So most of our lunch was spent learning about his business and In the end, we touched on some commercial, but it turns out he was looking for investors to continue flipping, and I've gotten in on one of his deals, which should be listing it soon, and then when that sells, we'll do another one and keep going. 
But that same person introduced me to a commercial broker who's relatively new but hungry to find buyers, sellers, deals. And him and I got together. He presented a deal. And it ended up being a great property. We closed on it two months ago. The person I had lunch with got a nice finder's fee for the introduction. Mm-hmm. And this broker subsequently has brought me several more deals, one of which we're closing on tomorrow. Wow. The deal that you closed on, what is it? What was the purchase price, business plan, that sort of thing? Sure. The first deal was uh, a building that had been vacant for two years. It's a bar on the first floor that's empty. There's a salon that's been rented for a number of years, and the whole second floor is vacant. It's connected to the bar. The broker also had a friend of his who operated a coffee shop slash bookstore, and they were looking to expand. So not only did he present the building to me, he presented a potential tenant. And before the closing, we were able to sign the tenant to a lease. They're going to convert the bar and the second floor to a coffee shop slash bookstore slash craft cocktails. So it should be a really neat concept. They've signed a 10-year lease. So total win-win. Interesting also about this deal was just before the due diligence period was up, triple checking my numbers, and I realized the property taxes went from $7,000 a year to $16,000 a year and couldn't figure out why that happened. But that was going to throw this deal out. There was no way to make these numbers work. Did some more research, found out that there was a tax abatement that was expiring, and called the broker and I said, listen, there's no way these numbers are going to work. He came back and said, listen, we've got to find a way to make this deal work. So we both got back in the trenches, brainstormed, arranged a meeting with the city council, and told them where our dilemma was and that this deal was not going to happen. And they came back and offered a partial rebate on taxes, called the bank and told them the same thing, that the numbers don't work on this. The bank, who I've been exclusively banking with since my very first deal, they came back and modified the loan significantly to make this deal work. And finally, all the pieces came together. We got a tax abatement, tax rebate, and my loan is heavy-handed on the back end. Okay. Interest only for the first year. Okay. Is that what they did that they didn't have before, interest only? They did. Interest only for the first year. I think they extended the amortization period 20% down instead of the typical 30. And everything fell into place and we got it to work. And what are high-level numbers on the deal? Sorry, $550,000 was the purchase price. And this was attractive because this was the same price that the building sold for in 2013 to the previous owner. So the lease numbers, I think total revenue will be around 5500 mm-hmm. both commercial leases. So roughly a 16 17% cash-on-cash return. But the tenant who's going to operate the coffee shop has an option to purchase the building in year three or in year five. So if he ends up executing either of those options, the annualized cash-on-cash return goes up to 25%. Would you be able to 1031 if that happens? I would. It'd be a a fair market sale, so to speak. Okay. And would you plan on doing that? Depending on the market. 
I see a lot of people out there that get into 1031s and they end up settling for properties just to avoid the taxes. And I think I'm still young enough in my career where I can afford to pay some taxes now and maybe in the next 10 years, the 1031 will be more important to can down the road. But as of now, rather than jumping into a mediocre deal, I'd rather pay the taxes. You mentioned the tenant is doing a coffee shop, bookstore. You said earlier the second floor was vacant. Who pays for the bookstore and the coffee shop and to get it up and ready? Part of the deal was I would give them a $50,000 tenant improvement allowance, and the bank will essentially finance that amount on my behalf. So I'm putting in $50,000 to building improvements, and the tenant is putting in $80,000 of his own money into operating costs and further improvements. So it's another win. There's roughly $100,000 of improvements going into this building. And then the deal that you are closing on tomorrow, how did you find that one? The same broker presented a deal. It didn't look all that appealing on paper. We went to the location. It's a small strip center, just three retail businesses operating out of there. And the place was just immaculate. It's a block away from the other building that I bought. And this is in a downtown a suburb that's got a lot of positive momentum some great businesses coming into this area. So the numbers on this one were a 6.8% cash-on-cash return as it is now. The leases are all expiring at the end of this year. So if we bring them up closer to market, the cash-on-cash return will be around 17%. And is this deal a buy-and-hold long-term? Because the last one, you gave the tenants an option to buy it. I gave the tenant the option to buy on that building just to make it more attractive for him. It's one of those things where if he's going to put a bunch of money into this building and it's somebody else's building, you don't get a great feeling about sinking a bunch of your own money into someone else's property. So if he has that option to purchase, he would feel better about making improvements to the building, knowing he could potentially buy in the future. Now, the purchase price is set with a nice return for me, he'll definitely be purchasing it above market value. But he now has a building that he no longer pays rent on Mm -hmm. and collects rent from the neighboring business that's also in the building. So the exit would be a win-win on that. To your question on this property, yeah, the tenants have been there for a number of years. They all plan on staying. So this is a simple, low-maintenance, low-overhead deal where I just re-signed the tenants to slightly higher leases, and there's very little landlord responsibility. What's the biggest challenge when managing a commercial building like a small strip center? Vacancies. If a tenant leaves and the space was specifically set up for them, you either have to find a tenant that can move into a space and take it as is, or you're paying for tenant improvements, which will eat into your profits for a couple of years. I had a strip mall on the west side of Cincinnati where it was the corporate headquarters of a local eye care company. And it was very specific to them. There was retail in the front and 80% of the space was office cubicles. 
Well, if they had left, it would be very, very difficult to find somebody to take over that footprint. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure that they're stable, they're happy, they're willing to sign a long-term lease. So the turnover is the biggest challenge. Do you have a property from your portfolio or maybe used to be in your portfolio where the tenant left and it just wiped out all the profits if you were to do the tenant improvement, so you just decided to sell and you didn't make nearly as much as what you thought you would because of that vacancy? No, and I think one of the ways that I avoid that is I'm a very hands-on landlord. Yes, you are. I can attest to that. (laughs) A tenant, whether it's commercial or residential, has my cell phone number. I'm their first point of contact. If there's ever any issues, I'm on-site quite often just to see how everything's going. I host happy hours either at my house or out somewhere for all of my commercial tenants. It's a meet and greet, networking, and kind of a business improvement type event where I try to get our commercial tenants together and see if we can share ideas and improve businesses, share marketing ideas, gain economies of scale by sharing vendors. So they're productive meetings, but they're also very social, fun events. But I think every interaction that you have is an opportunity to make a positive impression. So if your tenants know that you're always there for them, willing to go the extra mile, take care of all their requests, they're more likely to renew their lease. What's an example of when you did all of that, but then the relationship went sour? And maybe that hasn't happened. You don't have to get into specifics of who did this, but just as much detail as you can, if that happened, why did that happen? Because I know you are very hands-on. Yes. So on the east side of Cincinnati, I had a 12,000-square-foot single-tenant retail building and had a tenant that signed a five-year lease. I believe in year three of his lease, started slow-paying rent and gave me the typical sob story, promise next month I'll have it, next month I'll have it. And finally, I show up one day to pick up rent that he told me he was going to have, and the entire 12,000-square-foot store was empty. (laughs) And my jaw just dropped. (laughs) He thought he was doing me a favor by clearing out all of his inventory and giving me the building back in spotless condition. So when I asked him what happened... He said, listen, you've been very good to me. I wanted to make sure that I gave you this place back better than you gave it to me. And in hindsight, that was a huge disservice because now I had to market an empty 12,000-square-foot building for lease or sale. And had he stayed there and just told me his business wasn't working, I can't make it work, I can't pay your rent, I would have let him stay there for free as long as he lets me market it to another tenant or market it for sale. Mm. An empty building just is not very appealing. It makes that big of a difference where it's just he's got his stuff in this box versus it just being the box? It makes a huge difference. Yeah. Why? If you walk into an empty space, especially a 12,000 square foot box, it's hard to envision what the space could be. But when he had aisles and aisles of merchandise and clothes and racks and Things mounted on the walls, signs everywhere, Mm. people in there, the good energy in the building. People can see what that building could be. 
they can envision their own business in that spot. But a vast empty space is just not very appealing. Ash, how can best ever listeners learn more about what you got going on? Facebook, Ash Patel, Cincinnati, Bigger Pockets, Ash Patel. Well, Ash, thanks so much for telling me these stories and many others outside of this conversation because I learned a whole lot from you. And then also, you know, wanting to jump on this call and have this interview so that the best ever listeners can learn more about the commercial real estate strategies and just the overall approach that we talked about at the very beginning of the conversation where there were deals that were easier to find, but then your mindset shifted and now you're closing on deals, but marketing yourself more to get those deals and seeing results. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. This was fun. Do you need debt for your deal, equity for your deal, or maybe a loan guarantor to help you get qualified for the financing? Talk to Mark Belsky. His number is 212-897-9875. That's 212-897-9875. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com. The Target Market Insights Podcast is just that, a show solely dedicated to help you learn about target markets through the people successfully shaping them. The show features professionals who work directly with the audience and market you want to connect with in real estate. Listen and subscribe today at TargetMarketInsights.com. That's TargetMarketInsights.com.